Hi, this is Gwen Garcelon, and normally the inner game um, would be going live uh, right now. Um, and Elen Pevic was meant to be my guest today, and she's had a last-minute conflict. So, um, luckily... She, uh, this would have been my, 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 you know, I would have had the pleasure of getting to speak for, to her with, for a second time on the show. So we're going to broadcast, rebroadcast her, um, her first show with me, which was April of 2019. And Elen will um, be my guest uh, next month for a part two. So this will refresh uh, you listeners who are um, fans of the inner game and of a lens work and um and and introduce you to her if you don't know of her work so um let's see welcome to the inner game i'm gwen garcelon your host thanks for listening the inner game is the relationship we have to our authentic purpose and contribution in life It's about the ways that we grow personally and spiritually on the inside that affects everything on the outside of our lives. The quality of our inner game is becoming increasingly important because we now know that the world shifts to reflect whatever is inside us. Each of our contributions is critical to the quality of what is possible for us all on the planet. These are conversations with people who are up to something evolutionary in their lives and an opportunity to hear about how these people take on their spiritual and personal growth and how that strengthens their organizations and businesses to make a bigger difference. Our guest today is Elen Pevic, PhD. This is part two with Elen, and I really encourage you to listen to the, um, the first interview with her. Elen initiated her first award-winning school gardening program in 1998 at an elementary school in Vancouver, Canada. And she's been doing this work ever since and is the author of an amazing book called Growing a Life. Thank you so much for being here again, Elen. Oh, it's my total pleasure to be here. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> and and I'm excited to get to dig into a little bit more about um, some specific projects that you've been doing, such as the that first school garden in Vancouver. And and I wanted to ask, you know, kind of what was going on in your life at the time, and and what what could have or what were some of the the limits that you had to get past to get that first project off the ground because I know those are the things that stop so many of us the things that come up that can seem like obstacles but um that you that you were able to overcome to get this beautiful garden project started well the garden project began when I visited the school escorting a junior theater company of kids 12 to 14 who were doing a play um, that had been written specifically on immigrant kids in Vancouver because Vancouver is a city full of people literally from all over the world and full of the, the, the people, the indigenous people of Canada are called First Nations in Canada. Everybody refers to them as the the First Nations, and they were many, many, many nations. And so there's a huge cultural mix. And this play was dealing with people coming from different cultures 
uh, integrating and and being who they are at the same time in Canada. And I it was an opportunity. I was working for the art school that produced the the play with kids. They were 12 to 14-year-old actors. And we went to this inner city school called Grandview Aquiniqueue, and I had never been to this school. And that school was a kid, uh, a school with that was 50% First Nations kids living in native urban housing um, and and 50% immigrants for the most part from most Vietnam, Cambodia, um, Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union had fallen apart. So there were a lot of Eastern European immigrants in Vancouver as well. So very culturally diverse. And the school had very few resources for these kids. And I felt I needed to do something when I saw how poor the resources were there for them and how many challenges these kids faced. There were very few fathers at the school, a lot of grandmothers raising children. And I that's why I went back to graduate school, was to figure out what to do. But I had this experience of at a workshop uh, on addressing the social problems affecting children with wisdom, where a woman talked about her program in St. Paul, Minnesota, that brought together the School of Fine Arts, um, Concordia College with a bunch of master gardeners, and they did a summer horticultural and arts program with kids. And as soon as she described her program, I said, that's what I'm going to do. And I knew it was like literally every cell, it was like I had a bell ringing in my head. Every cell in my body knew that's what I was going to do at graduate school. So I went and asked them as soon as school opened up in September, this was in August that I had this experience. And as soon as the doors opened, I went and talked to these teacher and principal that I had met when we took the play in and said, can I do a garden here? And they said, oh, we'd love to have you do a garden here. So you were in graduate school. And what was the program that you were in? I was part of the education department called Curriculum Studies. And I was really interested in designing, engaging curriculum and getting kids engaged in life rather than sitting at desks. So a garden was the perfect way to do that. And I wrote the first grant to the Parks Department. We got that money, and then as soon as we knew we had money to start, we started a planning process, and I found a partner to help me in the landscape architecture department, and without Tracy Penner, who became the designer of the garden with the input from all the children, all of the staff, many, many neighbors and parents, it never could have happened. So we worked together every step of the way. Was that a big lesson out of that, is to find someone to collaborate with? Oh, yes. You have to find so many partners. I mean, we collaborated with the churches in the community, with the local community center. The school board wasn't even set up to accept grants. We partnered with various departments at the university. We brought in the Native Teacher Training Program, the nutrition department, though they sort of fell to the side. I had hoped they would be more engaged. But we had engineering students. It was a phenomenally collaborative process Mm -hmm. from day one. And little by once the teachers and the students and the neighbors said what they wanted, we began building it. We brought in, I brought in friends who were carpenters to teach the kids how to make the raised bed boxes because Mm -hmm. the school board required that everything be in boxes so that if they didn't take care of it, they could come in with a forklift and take it away. So that was a requirement we had to meet. Well, the kids were as excited about learning how to hammer a nail and build a garden box as they were about planting. Every skill, and all these adults came with the desire to share their skills with the kids. It was just such beautiful mentoring. And was that the first grant that you'd ever written? 
Uh, no, I had written some grants to help uh, an AIDS project in Portland before that. Okay. So it wasn't, you knew that that was a possibility. Oh, yeah. So grant writing wasn't a mystery. Yes. And I and, and we were able to identify the foundations in, in Vancouver that gave money for environmental projects. We got some of the first grants of some of those foundations. And we were the first wave of school gardens. There had been one 20 years earlier. We were the first and because of that, we were able to get a lot, a lot of support. And it was wonderful because these foundations believed in what we were doing because it was all tied to education. Everything, I volunteered my time. I, t- I taught one full day a week, every single class in the garden outside. And so it was, at the beginning, it was identifying what's in the soil, you know, digging up some soil to find the bugs and the worms. And then as we had something to do, it was planting in these new boxes, And then we got more money to build the community garden. And the community garden funding came from the Central Mennonite Committee of Canada. They set up a fund in in 1992 to apologize to the native people of Canada for Columbus's disruption of life in the Americas. Wow. And we were, and their fund was specifically to fund urban native gardens. They Paid, they gave us a $10,000 grant to build the community garden, which started with 20 boxes. We got recycled telephone cedar poles. Just sounds so abundant, like so much showed up and yes. was attracted to this. Yes. What do you think was the relationship between that dynamic and your spiritual underpinnings at that point. Do you think there was, because of the strength of your alignment with just that passion and value that that other things showed up to kind of align with that? What do you think is the dynamic going on there? Well, having had such a strong inner feeling that this was what I was supposed to do, nothing stopped me. <laughs> it was so clear and people were so receptive. And it, it just, and we were working with the indigenous people. So I felt I was so honored to be able to work with indigenous people. And, and three different nations claimed that piece of land. So we consulted with chiefs and elders from three different nations when we did everything. We had a huge potlatch to begin the garden. We had a potlatch when we, after we built the longhouse, the teachers wanted an outdoor classroom. And so we built a musqueam longhouse without walls, with poles. We did public art carving of what, it's like a totem pole, but it's not a full totem pole that became the beams of the longhouse. The elder in the school designed these in in, in the tradition of her tribe. So we had a a raven and, and the mythical thunderbird. And the kids were engaged in doing the painting because the totems in Canada are painted. And I thought, this is going to be, how do you manage a school of 200 children and everybody painting? And we had everybody from first grade up, and they never fooled around. It was like they sensed that this is, it's a very sacred process to create a totem pole. And they felt that from her. I, I, and some of these kids could be very naughty. Not anybody was ever naughty. Nobody ever painted on somebody else's painting mm. of the totem pole. It was a profound experience to see this complete integration of First Nations tradition and spiritual path 
into the process of the garden. And when we had the opening of the open house and of all the gardens, everything was just spectacularly beautiful. It was, we had planted 2,000 sunflower seeds for the millennium in the spring of 2000. And in the fall, we had the opening of the longhouse and all the gardens, and we had these spectacular sunflowers growing Mm -hmm everywhere. And every child in the school had planted them. There's 200 kids, 2,000, everybody planted 10 sunflower seeds. And of course, not all of them sprouted, but so many of them sprouted that we were just surrounded with life. It was gorgeous. Were you surprised by all of the sort of beauty that was just kind of showing up around this project? Or did it seem natural because that's where you just were coming from? I I wasn't surprised because everybody had worked so wonderfully well together. We we just we never had any serious problems. Well, let me take a quick break and say this is Gwen Garcelon, and you're listening to The Inner Game on KDNK. My guest today is Len Pevick, and we're talking about some of the projects that she's done over the years and how her spiritual guidance has been expressed through them. So at this time of this school garden project, you were a mother already. But my kids were very big. Hamilton was in high school and Zuleika was in college and the other kids were off on their own in the world being grown-ups. So you got started with the school gardens and was there sort of a light that came on that was a direction at that point or was it just sort of a natural passion or how did how did more school gardens happen after that or just did it seem like this was well, so great that this this one was I was sta- I spent 4 years at the school developing educational programs for adults and kids and preschoolers and writing a curriculum that we got a grant from the Vancouver Foundation for Outdoor Teaching, and we had children do the botanical drawings from the school that are in the curriculum that's sold through Evergreen Canada. And um, I then got a grant, because this had been so successful and did win awards, I got a grant from the Canadian government that is involved with international development, a very little grant, $7,500, that allowed me to go back to Brazil and start the work that I did in Brazil for the next 11 years in a very poor community uh, in the south of Brazil, collaborating with a family that had wanted, that ran a private school but wanted to do outreach to the kids that lived in the poor community. So that was the next one. And then I eventually ended up back in Colorado and began working with Fat City Farmers um, to, when I read an article in the newspaper, I didn't know either Michael or Jerome, who were amongst the founders of Fat City Farmers. Um, they had done a summer CSA program for young adults, learning, teaching them how to farm. And they lost the land that had been loaned to them to do that. And there was an article um, in the paper about them. And I called them up and said, have you thought about going to the schools? There's all these new schools that have just been built in Carbondale, and they all have huge empty land around them. What about having people farm on the land around the schools? And so... We did that, and the principal at the high school was very interested in that. So that's how we started the high school garden. So over the years, it feels like they're sort of continuing clear values of equality. And, and what else? What are the other values that kind of came through that were, that were threads through 
all these projects? Well, I've always been interested since I was a kid in experiential education. I have always felt that experiential education, whether it's in the arts or in the sciences, whatever it's in, that's how I learned the best. And and pretty much when I look at kids and work, have worked with kids now for so many years, most people learn through experience. Very few people are static learners. And um, I, so I was very committed to creating those kinds of learning environments and very created to good health, horrified at what has been happening all around the world with the rise of childhood diabetes, with obesity, with, I mean, and they're all totally preventable diseases caused by bad food and sitting still too much. So a garden is a way to get outside, grow food, and be very <clears throat> active. <laughs> so that all guided me, along with my own inner feeling that this is what I needed to do. And as uh, climate issues become increasingly in the forefront of our awareness, what do you think is the value of connecting children to the land right now? There's a lot of scientific study that has been done about the impact of being outdoors on both children and adults. We evolved in nature. Our eyes read the natural world, have read it for as long as we've been on Earth, far longer than we have read screens or books. We relax because that's how we evolved. When we relax, our cognitive abilities improve. Our executive functioning improves. We have so many kids on drugs these days for ADHD. Well, you put children whose way of developing their bodies and minds is to engage actively in the world. If you put them in chairs all day long, of course, they're going to end up with ADHD <laughs> because we are not allowing what they need as young developing bodies to do what their bodies need to do and their minds. And um, it, it's, I mean, brain studies have shown this. And I, I heard John Medina, who wrote the book, what is the name of his book on the brain? Brain? Oh, dear. Anyway, he wrote a book on the brain that's fabulous. And uh, he, he spoke at a green school conference in Denver. And he said, the brain has evolved out of doors in a state of constant motion to creatively solve the problems in front of it in ever-changing weather. He said, I don't know why anybody who builds schools invited me to your conference, but that's what you need to know about how the brain develops. So when you put kids, it doesn't, or grown-ups, I mean, teachers, I've had teachers and principals say, this school garden saves my sanity in the course of a school day. Yeah. Um, if kids go outside in my book, there is child, youth after youth saying, when I go outside, I can let go of everything that's stressing me out in the school day, and I relax, and then I can go in and do my work. Yeah. So working in dirt is something we've done not as long as we've just walked across it, because first we were hunter-gatherers, but we've been engaged in agriculture for 12,000 years about, and we have evolved with that. We haven't evolved sitting inside looking at a screen. Maybe companies should have company gardens. Well, they should, and there are <laughs> companies that do that now. Right. You know, there are. There are some smart companies yeah. realizing they need mm -hmm. to do that. And there's companies, I, I read a study of, in Seattle, where the people didn't have windows, of putting, realizing if they put pictures of nature inside the the offices, people were better off. Even just looking at a picture of nature helps the brain relax. Right. 
So it's very, this is based on science. Now, for me, before I read all that literature, it was based on intuition. I knew how I felt well. Mm -hmm. But now I've read the science, and the science backs up what our bodies immediately respond to in our minds. So I think it's a very important part of the educational day for teachers and children. Alain, for for people who who don't have a uh, maybe a, a formal spiritual practice or may not even really think of themselves as spiritual, what do you think the place of that is for us now? Is it is there is there awakening on a large level that you see? And and do you think it's it's really necessary that people explore that in order to provide the kind of leadership needed now on the planet? So are you asking me about people's time in nature or about their spiritual practice with that question or both together? Uh, it could be either. So, you know, I think there has been a lot of turning away from religion and spiritual practice because of the oppression of some religions or all religions. <laughs> um and so people feel a little bit allergic to some of the words yeah. um, that are part of religion and part of spirituality, words like God, that make a lot of people very nervous. I think a lot of people turn to nature for what we turn to, what for when they want connection with what for the, with the broader universe, with the divine, if they use that word. I had many of the high school kids that I interviewed tell me that being in the, working in the garden weeding was like meditating, that it gave them that same kind of feeling. I, I think many people move to the mountains or to the seashore to have that experience if they don't. Uh, and, and I think it's a very intuitive thing because mm -hmm. we evolved in this in being part of the whole world, not of being isolated. Right. We all need that. We need to connect with each other. We need to connect with the first crocus that just came up in the yard. And you go, oh, my gosh, that tiny little spot of yellow or purple is bringing me so much joy. I mean, who who doesn't do that in the spring? You know, it is, it's our connection to life, mm. and we're part of life. So it's another thing for children that's so important at schools that they have a chance to connect in their school day with what's alive. Yeah. And isn't it funny that those, so people in, in seeking that deeper experience often go to nature and have those, those traditional spiritual experiences of oneness and inclusion and compassion and and we don't even have to call it spiritual. <laughs> it's just what happens there. We human. become more human. Yes. Yes. It's being human. Yes. Well, I would love to hear a little bit about a local project that's happening. I know you're working in a lot of the school districts in this area. Well, we started um, a few years ago a project um, that was at the beginning called Inspire, that was funding offered by GoCo, uh, Go Outdoors Colorado, our lottery money, in order to get kids outside. They had read also the research on the importance of children having access to the outdoors as a regular part of their lives. And they are 
very have been very committed, put on excellent seminars to all of the communities who have applied for money for this project. They're now calling it Generation Wild. And we were very lucky that we got a $1.5 million grant we um, to develop outdoor education and outdoor spaces and programs for kids in western Garfield County. We brought together, Fat City Farmers initiated this, and we brought together our ACES, Roaring Fork Outdoor Volunteers, other organizations, the health department, Live Well, was, uh, which is now Garfield Healthy Communities. We brought all, together all these entities to talk about what we could do, and we realized that really this part of the valley is extremely well served with environmental education and with parks. Western Garfield County is not. And so we focused all of our efforts on starting programs in Garfield, in Western Garfield County and RE2 School District and Garfield 16, which serves Parachute and, and uh, that area. So yesterday I was in Parachute at the high school with five of our youth interns who were high school students at that high school. And we were doing two things, planting trees at the high school. And we it was a very special day for us, all of us who've been working together on this project for really four years to get it going. And because we dedicated those trees to, the, to Aaron Truk, mm-hmm. and Aaron was a key person in developing these programs with us, and we were all very close to him and appreciated his and for Enormous. the listeners who don't know him, he recently perished in an avalanche. Yes, on the Martin Luther King and weekend. And much-loved educator in the area. So, um, and we were also working at the middle school as a part of the funding. The middle school got money to build a, a, a dome, and uh, th- that's a grow dome like the one we have at the high school, a little bit smaller. There's is a 30-foot one. And so we were helping them with the filling up the dirt, doing some of the heavier labor that was easier for high school kids to do than, than middle school kids. And what do you hope is going to be the impact of that? Or what do you expect will be the impact of that on people there, on the kids there? Well, I think the Grow Dome is going to be absolutely a fabulous um, learning space for the kids. And they have a very committed science department to using it. They've already got some of the beds planted and they're doing science experiments. And so... Um, and the trees are going to be uh, shade, <laughs> primarily mm-hmm. giving a little oxygen, and but primarily creating shade because that mace is very hot. Yeah. And uh, we'll be at working, helping with these same interns. This internship program will be helping at grade schools in Rifle in, our, um, in two weeks to plant fruit trees and help with their gardens. And uh, they're going to have a wonderful experience at Peach Valley Farm next week, which is just our our oldest organic CSA. Well, thank you so much, Len. It's amazing to hear about your projects and the amazing contribution that they're making to so many. Thank you all for listening today. If you have a question for me or Len, join the Facebook page at The Inner Game. And until next time, find within you all that you have to contribute.